Hi guys, my name is Sarah, I'm one of the pastors here, uh, and today this is going to be one hell of a message. We're in this series, uh, Good Questions, uh, and today I want to talk about the question of heaven and hell. It's not something we talk about that often, but I think it, as we're in this series, we need to ask some of the hard questions. And those hard questions are going to lead us to good news. You know, I was listening to a podcast recently, um, and a very prominent uh, Christian author went through some difficult experiences, has uh, so-called deconstructed his faith, no longer calling himself a Christian. And I was listening to, you know, an interview with him, and he said, you know, I know it's all about God's forgiveness, God's mercy, God's grace, but, you know, it just seems really, you know, wrong to me that, you know, God says, here's my forgiveness, but take it or else you're going to hell. And I was really shocked because, I mean, this guy was a, a Christian author and, and leader, you know, in, in the past. And, like, that's what he thinks. Like, that's what he thinks. It's like, take this present or else. You know, he, like, is that seriously what he thought for, for all these years? Or is now he had, like, a characteristic of Christian beliefs on hell? So I just, I heard that. I was like, guys, we need to talk about hell because there's a lot of good news and this is not a secret that that the christian faith has this as part of the faith so let's actually look this in line let's actually see what the bible has to say about the, the, the this topic um, a number of years ago some sociologists they did a secret scientific survey and they asked folks when you go to a friend's house you know for parties I and mean, you don't know very well do you snoop in their medicine cabinet 50% of the participants, this is anonymous obviously, said yes. We open the medicine cabinet, take a little look around, see what's in there. For the record, I was the other 50%. Unless I really need toilet paper or something like that, you know, I, I have no interest in finding out if you are an adult who uses bubblegum toothpaste or if Aunt Sally has a nose hair trimmer, then your, your secret is safe with me if I'm a guest in your home. But 50%. Did a little peeking. You know, friends, we are peering into some of the kind of private things of God, into the back bedroom of our faith, if you you, you will, the, the, the back chambers. What do you think you're going to find there? What do you think you're going to find in kind of like the, the top floor boardrooms, the back chambers, God's private plans? There are no skeletons in God's closet. God does not have a dirty little secrets. God does not have, you know, the, he does not deviate from who he is in public, in private. When the time's up, he says, well, so I've got other aspects and now the punishment time comes. All of God is love and all his plans for us are good. You know, many Christians do not know what the Bible truly says about hell. You know, we think we do, but many of our ideas, I think, are based more on Dante's Inferno than they are on the Bible. And we just kind of think, well, you know, these ideas, pictures from, you know, long ago, Dante, you know, had hundreds of pages of fiction to fill. It's not based on, on the Bible. So what does the Bible actually say? And I think when we dig in that we'll find that sin is worse than we think but God is better than we think. Sin is deadly. God is love. So please pray with me, friends, and then we'll turn to our scripture passage. Jesus, we, 
we come to you really wanting to know all of what you have chosen to show us. And we know that there is much about you, your plans, eternity that we do not know that is beyond us. But we come to you with an open heart and an open mind. Would you lead us and guide us? We say we trust you, Lord. We turn to your your scripture, your truth, as truly a higher authority, the highest authority. Jesus, we receive your love. We receive your grace today. Would you help us learn and understand and grow for our greater benefit and for your glory? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So today we're going to be looking at... um, Luke 16. Uh, and in this section, you know, the Pharisees have been questioning Jesus. And actually, a lot of the questioning in this section was about money. Jesus has just said, you either serve God or money. The Pharisees, they saw health and wealth as signs of God's blessing. Um, they saw you know, poverty and sickness as signs of God's dis favor. And Jesus reverses this and tells them a story. Luke 16, uh, verse 19, if you want to follow along with me. Jesus said, There was a certain rich man who was splendidly clothed in purple and fine linen and who lived each day in luxury. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus who was covered with sores. You see, Lazarus gets a name. The rich man's like, oh, you know, what's his face? At Lazarus, as Lazarus lay there, longing for scraps from the rich man's table, the dogs would come and lick his open source. Truly um, terrible, friends. Finally, the poor man died and was carried by the angels to sit beside Abraham at the heavenly banquet. The rich man also died and was buried, and he went also to the place of the dead. There in torment, he saw Abraham in the far distance with Lazarus at his side. Friends, let's pay close attention to what the Bible says and does not say. Jesus is telling a story, a a parable. It's illustrative, metaphorical. The rich man shouted, Father Abraham, have some mercy on me. Send Lazarus over here to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue. I'm in anguish in these flames. But Abraham said to him, Son, remember that during your lifetime you had everything you wanted. Lazarus had nothing. So now he, here he is being comforted, and you are in anguish. And besides, there is a great chasm separating us. No one can come over, cross over from you to here, and no one can cross over from us to there. Then the rich man said, Please, Father Abraham, at least send, send him to, to my father's home for I have five brothers and I want him to warn them so they don't end up in this place of torment. Abraham said, Moses and the prophets have warned them. Your brothers can read what they wrote. The rich man replied, No, no, Father Abraham, if someone is sent to them from the dead, then they will repent of their sins and turn to God. But Abraham said, if they won't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. You know, this is tough. There's no sugarcoating it. You know, I look at this and I say, you know, I I want to 
save that dude. Sure, he was a, a bad person in his life, but you know, you 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 feel like you you want to save him. Well, so does God. But let's let's read carefully what what this story is showing us. Is again, it's a story that Jesus is telling. What is the story showing us? Firstly, does what's his face repent? No, he, he would like an alleviation of his punishment, but he is actually continuing in his sins. In a shocking display of, of arrogance, he wants Abraham to make Lazarus his servant. He does not say, wow, Lazarus sure was a better person than me in life. He says, hey, make Lazarus do me a favor. No one accidentally goes to hell, right? Let's reiterate that. No one accidentally goes to hell. C.S. Lewis said that there are two types of people in this world. People who say to God, thy will be done. And people to whom God says, thy will be done. Um, in, the, in the Bible, there are two words that are frequently um, translated as hell. There are also other ideas like uh, the idea of judgment day that are kind of conflated but are very separate things. There are two words from hell, for hell. The first one is um, sheol, in uh, Hebrew or Hades in Greek, Sheol or Hades. And this just means dead, death, um, the, the underworld, the place of the dead, um, when you are not alive. So Sheol or Hades, a very physical, um, accurate scientific description. And then the other word is Gehenna. And this is used in the New Testament um, Greek, and it's actually an actual place. It's the Valley of Hinnom. And this was a place where the, there was child sacrifices uh, outside of Jerusalem. Um, the big pagan temple for child sacrifices then became a, a garbage dump where you know, beggars would go sift through the garbage. And it was a place of extreme suffering and sin. It was a literal hell on earth, not an afterlife, but here on earth, Gehenna or, or hell. Um, when Jesus tells this story, He's not using Gehenna, hell here on earth. He's using the word Hades, a descriptive term for the place we go after we die. And the rich man and Lazarus are both in the same place. They're both in Hades, but they both experience it very differently. And I'll toss out uh, an interesting idea here. The Orthodox Church, Greek and, and Russian or Orthodox, so a large percentage of you know, traditional Christians um, throughout time in history, Orthodox Christians, they have this uh, interesting idea about hell, that hell is God's love for people who refuse to accept it. God's love is sometimes termed a, a consuming fire for believers who submit to the purifying force. For those who resist it, it, it it's painful. I think there's, you know, there's something to this idea. We obviously aren't given the blueprints of, of heaven and hell. There's so much of it that is a mystery, and mystery is good for us. It's good for our, our souls. It's a kind of sturdy, expandable container for trust. Mystery is positive for us. If I walked around being like, I know what's going to happen to you in the afterlife. I know what's going to happen to you after you die. That would be disastrous for my soul and my soul is my life's work. So there's much of this that we, we don't, don't, don't know. But uh, a large number of Christians have held to, to this view. C.S. Lewis um, held to this view of hell. And I, I kind of like it because it emphasizes the realities of, of punishment, uh, of judgment, and the realities of God's love 
being so much bigger, so much better, so much overarching to any punishment that we inflict on ourselves. It's kind of like, kind of like a teenager. Teenagers go through a really terrible, angry phase, and um, they hate going to their grandmother's house. Like, ugh, that place. She's always trying to feed me food and, and tell me what a great future I have and give me money for college, and the place smells like cinnamon, and she pinches my cheeks, and it's just plain hell. How do we react to God's love? How will we accept and receive God's love? And friends, the point of this story is that, I mean, hell was this this experience in, in Hades for him. This was avoidable. He says, hey, give my brothers an undeniable sign that will force them to change. He's like, send somebody back from the dead. Surprise. That will scare the hell out of them. And Abraham says, hey, if they are not already softened to love and charity through the witness of scriptures, a big surprise ain't going to change their character. The Bible is very clear about God's end of this bargain. Very clear about God's purposes and plans and intention for the world that he made. God desires that everyone is saved, that everyone knows him, that God's original plan for the world is fulfilled, comes to fruition. God will, God does have judgment and punishment prepared, but it's prepared for Satan, for the originator and author of all evil and suffering. There is punishment prepared, you know, lake of fire metaphorically, again, no, no blueprints, but it's not intended for people. And in a world with human trafficking and, and child sweatshops, God's judgment of evil is good news. We say, thank you, God that you, there is justice. Thank you, God, that you will deal with evil. However, no people need go there. There's a big sign in front of hell saying, not intended for human participation. Please enter by way of the cross, heaven, over there. God will deal with evil. People, he has a better plan for, and he's made a way forward through Jesus, through his death on the cross. Also, I'm not sure when we, as little humans, alive and well, when we read this story, that this is really about hell for us. At least from our human perspective, you know, the afterlife is God's business. Life here and now is our business. Um, the, the point of the story for us is to pay attention to the disastrous example of how the rich man lived his life. And the, and the consequences of it. In the end, Jesus bends the story back to earth, bends the story back to what we're doing here and now by talking about the um, five brothers and how they can avoid this experience of the afterworld. The point is not to let our hearts be, be hardened in this life because the character we have here obviously gets pretty cemented um, in, in itself. The point is for us to care for the poor to be generous, to listen to the scriptures, to be soft, to love. The Bible says, do what's right. There will be consequences. But human beings, we, we can get a little obsessed with that last part and ignore the important part. You know, human beings have a, a tendency to anxiety rather than action. 
you know, I was uh, talking to a very good friend and um, I was watching her kids and one of her sons is like four years old. And um, now listen, when I babysit people, I do not always expect a four-year-old to, to listen to me. I was a little surprised when this four-year-old started violently and repeatedly hitting my husband, um, which he does not you know, accept nicely. I was wondering if Stephen was going to return the favor on that. And he was just, I mean, he was like, it was, my kids were like eyes wide. So my friend came back and we were talking about, you know, her son's behavior. And my friend's just saying, you know, this happened and this happened. And, you know, they're talking about all these things going on with the son. I said, listen, I wouldn't worry. He's a great kid. I would do something. Though, you know, I recommended, you know, we have therapists, you know, I, ha- I recommend a couple of people, you know, some structured preschool. It will cost money, but it, it's worth it. I wouldn't worry. I would do something. Now, if you're not going to do something, well, go, go ahead and worry. Us as humans are more inclined sometimes to anxiety than to action. And the entire point of this passage God will deal with things in the end. The entire point of this passage is not uh, uh, about judgment per se, but is about us living though the way that God intends, soft and caring and loving towards others. What should we do with this story? The author Brian Zan says that when we read this story, we should see in all of us that we are the rich man that we live in a world where literally a billion people are are dying for scraps from our table. We live in a world where where, where dogs have health insurance and, and people don't. We can see much in this that should remind us of our circumstances and move us to compassion, care, and love the attributes that bond Lazarus and Father Abraham to enjoying eternity together. The good news is that God has a plan for you to be part of his restoration of all of creation. God wants to see, to help you be be a conveyor of justice and mercy and care and compassion. God wants you to look at new stories of suffering and see God's God's promise and potentially see beautiful people to see Jesus in the face of a homeless man in Framingham. God wants to share with you the joy of caring for the poor. If you refuse, God will uh, accept that and will allow you to not join in in that with him, accept your separation. But that's the point of this story. It's an invitation to join God in love and care. I think much of the hell, judgment, turn, and burn language in the Bible is not so much about God's anger, but about the effects, the the descriptive effects of our sin. Hell is accurate about the results of our sin, the effects of our sin. Romans 6.23 says, The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
This is just, I think it's accurate descriptive language. If we persist in, in violence and anger and gossip and hatred and jealousy, we are going to work ourselves into hell. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Sin should scare the hell out of us. Look what sin did to this rich man. Sin is deadly. God is love. You know, if you're at a home and you've got a Bible or um, you can Google or, or a concordance, um, do me a favor right now and look up the Bible reference for uh, love the sin or hate the sin. I'll give you a sec to figure out uh, where what Bible verse that is in the Bible. But not too long because it's not in the Bible. Uh, the, Bi- the Bible does not say love the sinner, hate the sin. It's not a terrible, um, it's not a terrible sentiment, but I actually, it's not in the Bible. And I actually really think that the better summary of some of the Bibles that I've used, if we kind of coalesce all together is love the sinner, hate your own sin. Most of us are way too focused on other people's sins and way too lenient casual on our own sin. Love the sinner, hate your own sin. The Bible doesn't say God wants to punish us. He's looking for a reason and an excuse like, let me bring the hammer down on these people. The Bible is clear, however, about where the path uh, of greed and selfishness, of, uh, of hatred and jealousy will lead us to. The Bible just tells us the truth about the effects of sin. Who rejected who in the Garden of Eden? God does not have a beef with us. It's us who have a beef with God and reject him. Hell is not about God's hatred of sinners. Hell is about sinners' hatred of God. We're looking at Luke 16. Well, in Luke 15, one chapter before, Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And he says, a man had two sons. And one day the younger son came to him and said, Dad, I wish you were dead and I could have my inheritance now. Give me half of all you have. The father, sadly, divided up his property, his riches, and gave half of it to the younger son. And the younger said, son said, peace, and left. Went away to a far, far away country where he quickly squandered his father's riches on bad living. After that, a famine came upon the land. The younger son was forced to take the worst of jobs where he just, he just longed for the trash that people fed to the pigs, but no one would give him any trash to eat. In desperation, he said, how many of my father's servants have three meals a day? I'm going to go back and say, just take me on as your servant. So he prepared to go and say, I've sinned. Please take me home as, as take me back to live in the back of barns and live as your servant. But his father saw him coming from a long way off, took his old infirm body and ran down to meet his son and said, my child, my child, my child, how I've missed you, how I love you. We must celebrate. Here, take my credit card. Spare no expense. My child, my child, my child. 
imagine with me that the son's maybe 15, 16, you know, a while before he spits in his father's face and takes half of his stuff from him, but old enough and his opinions are still being informed. Imagine with me that the father told him, as fathers sometimes tell their kids things, son, let me tell you, if you turn from me, if you take and waste my blessing, if you steal from me, if you squander my riches, if you waste the property and inheritance here, you will starve. Curses will come upon you. You will be impoverished and miserable. You will wish you were my servant. What if the father had warned his son about the effects of his sin? Would we say that father is vengeful and mean, wrathful God? Is the father angry and vengeful? No, he's accurate. He's accurate about the effects of sin. The father doesn't want that. He's forgiving. He's kind. He's incredibly loving and generous. The author Brian Zandig again says, when the prodigal son fell fearfully into the hands of his father, forgiveness, healing, and restoration began immediately. Just because the son felt fear and trepidation as he returned doesn't mean he had anything to fear from the father. In the father's hands was the only safe place to be. It was in the far country where the prodigal son was in danger, not in the father's hands. When we fall into the hands of the living God, we are sinners in the hands of a loving God. We are sinners in the hands of a loving God. Jesus tells us the story of the prodigal son. It's not just a nice story. It's God's life story. It's God who spares no expense, who pursues us to, to earth, comes running after us even into death and brings us back to life in the resurrection. The core revelation of who God is, is found in Jesus. Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and is the ultimate definitive revelation of God. The Bible says no one has ever seen God. It is God the Son who is close to the Father's heart, who makes God known to us. Hebrews says, In these last days God has spoken to us through His Son. Jesus is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. We don't have to wonder what God will do about us. We have seen who God is, how God interacts with sinners. We have seen who God is in the face of Jesus. And in it, we see that God would rather suffer than leave us alone, that God would rather face judgment himself than judge us, that God would rather go to hell than send us to hell. And when God meets hell, all heaven breaks loose. Friends, the good news is, that God loves us and God has defeated and overcome every force of sin and evil, injustice and oppression. He has warned us and we take these warnings as calls to our heart to turn to a loving God and find his full re forgiveness, redemption and justification at any point 
in time. Well, friends, as we end, um, I'm just really struck by this idea that God is the safest place for us to be when we have sinned, when we have failed, when we have really messed things up, not to hide, not to run away, but that God welcomes us back. We may have real things that we need to deal with, real sins we need to repent of. God's always welcoming us in. So I want to pray into that as we end. Um, I want to pray over any folks who, you know, maybe you've grown up in a background being told that God's angry with you. Uh, maybe you've got some, you know, tendencies uh, towards, you know, beating yourself up. God does not want that for you. Will you pray with me? There is good news in every single part of God's uh, plan for us. And there is good news uh, in, in how he handles the afterlife for us. So, friends, let's take that good news right here, right now, and pray into that. Jesus, right now, we do uh, turn to you. And uh, sins, failures, flaws, we give to you, Jesus. We say, would you make our hearts kind and soft and loving, we do not reject your ways, your truth, your righteousness. Would you mold us in compassion and care for others, especially compassion and care for the poor, the hurting, the vulnerable? Jesus, would you keep us truthful and honest? Lord God, in ways that we have not pleased you, ways that we have not lived according to your best plan for us, Jesus. We repent, we turn, we change, we look to you. Lord God, I pray healing over any anyone watching this right now who's just really had the uh, idea that God is mad at them, God is upset with them, God wants to punish them. You want us to come to you for healing, for forgiveness, for restoration. And right now we come to you. And the moment we come to you, that's when healing and restoration begins immediately. We receive your work of redemption. We receive the completed work of your cross and your resurrection over our lives and over our hearts and minds right now. In Jesus' name, amen.